Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Yes, do high performance teams learn differently from others? And how can you as a leader unlock the potential of your teams? Time to find out with Dr. Peter Cowellier. He's chief team connector at Team as One. He's also the author of The Untapped Team Advantage, Building Team Connections as a Leadership Choice. Good morning, Dr. Cowellier. How are you? Good morning, Michelle. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Good to speak with you. So uh, can we start with the title, perhaps? What is this untapped team advantage that the book refers to? Uh, In my experience, Michelle, I've seen so many organizations, large and small, around me um, where, you know, teamwork, collaboration, or the word teams are used all over the place. But when you really dig a little bit into it, uh, there's nothing much behind those terms. Every company says that collaboration is important, teamwork is important, but then what will they really actually do? What will they put in place to make teams in their organization successful? And there's so little there, and so I'm just fascinated by the huge potential that there is in nearly all organizations I've seen to really get more out of teams because the good news is that we're not really putting that much effort behind the words collaboration and teamwork that we like to proclaim as being so important in the organization. So that's why I selected the, the title, The Untapped Team Potential, because there's so much more to be had there. That's great to know. So the book starts with an interesting scenario that I think most of us have experienced in organizations when there's a new leader on board that wants to display a show of strength. And that leader starts with culling and, you know, interviewing to make sure that only the high performers get a seat on the bus, as your book refers to. Why did you want to include that scenario? At what point were you trying to make there? Yeah, and I, I, I didn't use the word culling, but that's actually a pretty good uh, description there. So indeed, several authors actually recommend when a new leader comes into a role, he or she must show to the organization that, of course, they made the right choice and that now things will be different. And one of the ways, one of the items on the checklist actually is to do exactly that, to get the wrong people off the bus and get the right people on the bus. And I start with that anecdote or story because I've, strongly disagree with it. Now, if your organization counts on individual performance only, that would logically be the right thing to do. So in that case, I would agree. But think a little bit. uh, More and more these days, uh, it's about solving problems together. It's about collaborating. So just having 10 high performance on your team by taking off or culling whatever the others are, are then called, does not make you a high-performance team. And just look at sports teams, right? There's so many stories about great players that were, look at a soccer team, for example, that were purchased by a team at a great cost, with a great pedigree, and then they arrived in the new team and they don't do so well. Now, why is that? That high performer didn't all of a sudden lose the talent or skill. It's just that in a team, it's about working with others in a team. So in sports, we often see that high performance don't really do well just by going from one team to another. And I say it's the same in organizations. It's not by putting high performance performance players, A players together, Mm. that then you have a high performance team. 
Yeah. So your book talks about the relationships that need to happen for great teamwork. I wonder if you can walk us through some of the guidelines that uh, you describe that are important for building a high-performance team. Yeah. Actually, the word I use, Michelle, is, is connections. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to use the word connections because relationships or relations feels like just a just purely the interpersonal part, which is important. But I use the word connections because for me it's about how people work together. So you don't. But isn't a relationship friends. the heart of a connection? You can't have a connection without a relationship, right? That interpersonal. Well, connect- that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Interrelationship needs a connection. But I would even argue that there might be somebody on the team that I don't really like. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I don't like him or her because we have nothing in common and. Maybe in politics, we, we, are, we have opposite views. But I would argue, so maybe the relationship is a bit weak there. Mm. But I would argue that if, if we can work together, if I see your point of view when we're talking about solving a customer issue and we can build on each other's ideas, that I think in a high-performing team takes priority over, let me give the opposite example. We have a great relationship, Michelle and I, but we're, we're good friends and we spend our weekends together with our families. But when Michelle says something and I don't really agree with it, I don't want to speak up in front of the others in the team because I don't want to make Michelle feel uncomfortable. So there is kind of a, a fine line between relationships uh, and to what extent it, it, it promotes working together, performing together as a team, or to what extent it can sometimes hinder that. No, I think that's a great point. But I also think that that's the whole context of relationships in a professional setting. We talk about professionalism Mm -hmm. and that's being able to work with people that you may not necessarily like, but still being able to respect their point of view and see their point of view and connect and work with them. So in terms of guidelines for building a high performance team, are there some quick takeaways that we can share with our listeners? Yeah, I, I go to a, a few basic ones, and I actually call them the, the, the basic team requirements and then the team framework. And, and those are, I would say, relatively simple but often forgotten. And it's just to say, well, you have a team. What is the, what is the key performance indicator of the team? What will the team measure itself in six months or one year from now? Hmm. It sounds common sense, but we hardly do that. You know, we have maybe big corporates. Targets, we have individual department targets, but this team, these five or six people, what is our KPI? The other, um, just going through them here, uh, I, I emphasize how do we run meetings? What are the ways we run our meetings? That could be a, a whole discussion in itself. Mm-hmm. How do we do one-on-one meetings within that team? How do we identify the team roles, et cetera, et cetera. I call these the building blocks of the team. We need those. But then for me, really the difference is in the connections, is how we ensure people connect with one another, learn from one another, and and cooperate, collaborate. Mm. So in this post-COVID world, there's so many virtual teams that are popping up. And I know in your previous work, you've also, you know, well, most people talk about teams, also talk about psychological safety. So I wonder if there's some ground rules that teams need to keep in mind about these virtual meetings coming together in that virtual space. Any tips for team building there? Yeah, uh, it's it's of course much more of a of a of an issue today than it was actually just last year, right? So allow me to to, to answer in two parts because you mentioned team psychological safety, and that's the core tenet of the book. Hmm. Uh, because team psychological safety, and and I think it's important to remember the original definition. It's uh, the fact that people feel comfortable in a team to take interpersonal risks. 
Yeah. Okay, it's to say, hey, Michelle, I don't understand what did you mean there, or Michelle, I kind of have a different opinion. This is what we call interpersonalist. And if a team, if the team members can or feel comfortable and safe to take those risks with one another, then it sets up the team for learning. And that's the whole original concept of team psychological safety. And if we can learn, it means we'll be better today than yesterday and better tomorrow than today. And that's the whole concept of high-performance teams. Now, just a, a quick word on virtual teams. Of course, um, it, I, I, I argue that everything that we know about high-performance teams is still applicable in the virtual world, except it takes us, we need to put some extra effort uh, to create those connections. Just a simple analogy of the, the water cooler conversation or the coffee break, that is where we chat with one another in the organization. We come across people, we say, hey, how are you? All that is kind of gone in the virtual world. And, and the way to, to an extent possible, bring that back is actually to do explicitly that. And I know organizations have done that, right? To say, let's have a team call, not to talk about the project or the customer issue, but just to talk about how each of you are doing to build that social, quote-unquote, time, we actually call it social, socialization, uh, in the virtual world, it comes less naturally than in the you know, physical world or face-to-face -face world, but we need to put some effort as team leader and as team members to recreate the almost equivalent of that social time while we're working virtually. All right, we're talking with Dr. Peter Corwellier. He's Chief Team Connector at Team is One and the author of The Untapped Team Advantage, the book that we're reading today. So, you know, Doctor, we, we hear so much, uh, Peter, about team building exercises, activities that corporations put in place in a pre-COVID world. It was maybe sometimes even getaways to different countries, right? Are, are there things that are, do work when it comes to building teams that can cooperate? <laughs> when, when the way you ask the question, Michelle, it feels like you, you think those getaways don't really work, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most well, people just try to get out of it. Exactly, exactly. So, okay, two, two things on that. First of all, getting out of it and doing a retreat, it's all great for reducing energy. It's all great for, you know, getting out of, away from it it's all for a while. However, if we are critical and say, then do we work as a team differently after that getaway, most often the honest, honest answer is not. And I say that, the, well, you can call that team building. I don't call it team building. Let's call it team fun or team relaxation. Mm -hmm. Really building a team needs to happen at work. By definition, you cannot say let's, let's work from Monday to Thursday and then on Friday we're going to do a team building thing. It needs to be part of work. And, and in my book, I, I have a, a several small techniques. There's, there's no big bang one-day activities that I promote because it needs to be connected to work. So just a simple first step is to say at the end of each meeting or a, a project review or whatever is the, the routines we have. For example, we could do, Michelle, you and I at the end of our discussions once we're offline to say, what did we do well as, as a conversation here? What should we keep on doing because it, it was pretty successful? Or what wasn't comfortable for you, Michelle, or for me, Peter? And so to have these little check-ins as part of our regular routine, our regular work, and then build on those little by little. So I'm not a proponent of big bang team building events, mm -hmm. um, if, except if it's for the fun part. If we really want to build a team, it's going to happen by little actions that we take uh, almost daily as part of our regular work. 
Peter, do you think that some people need to understand the difference when teamwork is required? And then there are times when teamwork is not required, when people need to do their own homework, maybe chat in, you know, groups of two or three rather than sit down with a whole team of 30 or 40 to prevent wasted time and unnecessary frustration. Do you think people need to understand when to work as teams? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's also a key point I make in the book. Ask yourself, the, in, I think in the, in the first chapter, ask yourself the question, is a team what you need? Uh, there may be situations where it's a lot of effort and maybe that's not what your organization or business needs. Um, the second point I want to make, um, definitely a team, by the way, I never say you know, 30 or 40 people, Michelle, that's, not, that's for me not even a team. You cannot have people work together, mm, 30 mm. or 40 people. You, you can put people in a meeting room and have them go through PowerPoint slides, yeah, that's, but that's mm. not working. That's yep. not collaboration. So when we look at a team, really we think about six or seven people, not more. But even in those six or seven people, yes. Sometimes people need to work alone. Sometimes people need to pair up with somebody else in the team or outside of the team. So definitely not everything needs to be team time. Uh, that would be just burnout for everybody. And, but, but then the opposite is when we get together with the six or seven or eight people, it's to work. It's not to go through business updates. It's not to go to PowerPoint slides. It's actually to work. It's to sit around the table and create something together or to address a problem or a customer issue or whatever it is. It's to work together and, and roll our sleeves up. How do leaders, and you make this point in the book, that leaders need to take responsibility for building great performance teams? Now, I've seen organizations where they're actually separate lifts for leaders because they emphasize hierarchy. So you're not even supposed to step into the same lift as the leader. They have their private lifts. Or I've, I've seen leaders who are very good at communicating contempt. So you could say, hey, how are you? And they'd look at you and walk away. So how do leaders who take responsibility for building great performing teams treat their employees or regard their own connections uh, with employees? Mm. Those are some scary examples. I hope, I hope there's a few <laughs> other examples of, of you know, people being able to, to get in the same elevator. So uh, allow me to separate, to say First of all, the examples you mentioned, for me, they point more towards the culture of an organization Mm. uh, where top management or management considers themselves to be in a different class or hierarchy, and they don't even talk to uh, other people in the organization. Now, that is sad, but but I think that's a whole different ballgame. When I look at a a leader of a team, I, I look at a specific leader with a specific team. So, again, six or seven or eight people. It's not a leader with an organization of 10,000 people that is not a team or even of 100 people that is not a team. So when it comes to, and and the research has been very clear about that, when it comes to the team critical behavior for team leaders, there's a lot of things I could mention here, but I think the key one to mention is vulnerability. It's just to say that I as a leader don't have all the answers. We are six or seven or eight smart people. I happen to be the leader, but let's look at this together. Let's learn from one another. Now, of course, the person you mentioned that gets in the separate elevator, that will obviously not be his or her mindset, but I don't think that organization, even if they have teamwork or collaboration on the list of key values, uh, I don't think in reality much of that, if you were to interview the other people uh, in that organization, would, would, would actually exist. So for me, the key for a leader is to show in his limited or her limited circle with that team is to say, vulnerability. Let's look at something together. I know some things, you know some things. And how can we as a team learn from that 
and move to a better situation by solving the problem or addressing the issue. Before we let you go, Dr. Kowelia, is it true that high-performance teams learn differently from other teams? It is true. Uh, I would say they learn. They really learn. Meaning, if an issue has come up, they talk about it. And they say this issue came up, and, and even if it's a bit painful because it's about people and it's about you know, what you said, what he said, or she said, uh, they address it and they say, what can we learn from it? At the opposite, that's why I say it's more that high-performance teams do genuinely learn. I think in other teams, too often, we avoid talking about those difficult things. And so we don't learn from them. We sweep them under the carpet and we hope they will go away. Very often those become stories of the past, histories, skeletons in the closet that have never been addressed and really hold the team back. So it's, in a way, yes, it is they learn differently, but it's more like they actually learn, whereas a, non, a team that's not doing well is not addressing the issues and therefore not learning. I would, I would uh, separate it in that way. It's a great framework the book provides us for understanding teamwork. Dr. Peter Kowelia is uh, author of The Untapped Team Advantage. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for the opportunity, Michelle. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.